EU Confidential gets started right after this short message. Today's episode is presented by the Johns Hopkins University SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies, a global university with campuses in Washington, D.C., Bologna, Italy, and Nanjing, China. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I am convinced that today we are living through the most dangerous moment of the post-Cold War period. The most dangerous moment since the Cold War ended. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. And you just heard the voice of the EU's foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell. He was talking about a range of threats he sees Europe facing right now. But, of course, the possibility of a Russian attack on Ukraine was top of his list. We'll delve into the latest on that with a pan-European podcast panel in just a moment, featuring contributors from Latvia to London via Brussels and Berlin. And later in the episode, we'll hear from Polish member of the European Parliament, Patrick Jaki. The Conservative MEP will discuss his country's clash with the EU over the rule of law, as well as Poland's climate transition and how he became a politician. But first, let's get to that podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to a special pan-continental podcast panel this week. Uh, Matt is with us as usual in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Good day. And joining the lineup uh, this week, Annabelle Dixon, old friend of the podcast in the UK. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And uh, special guest, our Nordics and Baltics correspondent, Charlie Duxbury. Charlie, tell us where you are. Um, I am just outside Riga, just off the highway, on my way back from the eastern reaches of Latvia, Daugav Pils, where I've been for the past few days, speaking to people about the security situation there. Okay, well, maybe let's just start with you in uh, Latvia, Charlie. I mean, obviously, the, the big story still dominating the headlines, certainly on continental Europe anyway, is the Ukraine crisis. So why did you uh, head out into the east of Latvia and what did you find out there? Yeah, well, I thought it'd be an interesting place to visit, Andrew, because it's a NATO member along with the other two Baltic states. The, the sort of southeastern corner of Latvia um, has shares a border with both Belarus and Russia. 
and there's a town down there. There's likely a second city called Dalgoth Pills. Um, and I thought it'd be useful to us to go down there and see, you know, see how people are, are reacting to the deteriorating situation there. They've they've noted. I I, I realised when I spoke to them the the movement of troop, Russian troops into Belarus. That's worrying them. While I was there, I also was interested to see what kind of military presence there is down there. And so I I met up with the National Guard, the Latvian National Guard, who kindly hosted me there and took me out on to their training area, which is about 30 kilometers from the, the Belarusian border, showed me how they, how they do their training, what kind of planning they've got for the future. So an interesting spot. Mm. How worried are people there by the, the prospect of an attack, uh, a Russian attack on Ukraine? And are they, are they actually worried that, that Russia could go further, that Russia could even uh, you know, attack Latvia? Or are they worried about the kind of uh, knock-on effects of a war in Ukraine, renewed war in Ukraine? And what in particular uh, are they concerned about there? The impression I got from people as I walked about Dagaf Pills was that they're aware that the primary Russian focus is on Ukraine, but they are worried about their own situation. People said they feel their own proximity to the Belarusian border. They feel it's an unstable situation. One young lady said that it's so close. You know, we, of course, we're worried about it. We, we talk about it all the time. If anything starts, you know, we are so close to the border here that, that you know, they're worried about their own security as well as, obviously, the situation in Ukraine. Mm. Matt, let me just turn to you because obviously uh, we're talking partly there about the potential consequences for for neighbouring countries of a Russian attack on Ukraine. And that's a subject you've been delving into for for a story this week, just looking at how this might all play out if there is an attack. Um, What were your main conclusions? I know you talked to some some experts. What kind of picture overall did they paint of of how this might play out, uh, not just in Ukraine, but uh, across Europe, really? Well, it's pretty consistent with what Charlie is saying. And I think that something people often forget when they talk about NATO and being a member of NATO is that that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you don't have to worry about your security anymore. In fact, just the opposite is true. So when people say, well, we need to debate now whether Sweden and Finland should become members of NATO, it's going to be really up to those countries, of course, to decide that. But as somebody told me, it's it's not a magic talisman that if you join NATO, that all of a sudden your security position is going to improve. It could arguably worsen. So I think the kind of foreboding that Charlie is describing now in Latvia is something that you see around the region, not just in the Baltics, obviously, but you're going to see something similar in the eastern part of Slovakia, which borders western Ukraine, uh, in Hungary, in Romania, and all of these countries that could very soon find themselves again on the front lines of what some people think could very quickly turn into the largest arms conflict in Europe since World War II. Yeah, let's have a look at it from a UK perspective, uh, Annabelle, because obviously uh, here in Brussels, we've been focusing very much on the European Union and its reaction. We had uh, foreign ministers from around the EU here in Brussels on Monday, uh, where they were once again warning of very grave consequences 
if Russia attacks Ukraine. But obviously, uh, the UK has gone its own way. It uh, can uh, very much pursue its own policy here. How would you characterise how the UK has approached the Ukraine crisis so far? And I guess it's an early test, not just for you know post-Brexit foreign policy, but also for uh, Liz Truss, the relatively new foreign secretary. Yeah, we've heard a lot more about Ukraine this week. I mean, some might say it's a bit of a cynical ploy to get Partygate out of the headlines, but obviously there's there's a genuine concern in London about what's happening. Not really surprisingly, we're seeing the sort of Anglosphere unity. The UK is definitely looking towards the US. It seems like every time the US sort of gives an indication of what its position is going to be, the UK follows. So The US is talking about sending more troops to Eastern Europe. The UK is doing the same. This morning, the story was about sanctioning Putin personally. The UK is talking about that as well and sending weapons to Ukraine. Um, And I think that reflects the sort of special relationship at official level, regardless of, of politics. There's always been that relationship between the US and the UK on intelligence sharing. So Whether this is a sort of new post-Brexit approach, I'm sort of dubious that we wouldn't be seeing this anyway. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting also that uh, the UK, and in fact, I think the statement came from Liz Truss herself, you know, put out this idea that they had intelligence that, that Russia was preparing to install a kind of puppet regime in Ukraine. And this was actually put out as an official statement rather than kind of brief to reporters on the, on the quiet. Do you have any indication as to why they went so publicly with, with that assertion? Yeah, it's, it's a very unusual way to do things. I mean, the timing was quite interesting. It was, as you say, fed officially from government. It was the Sunday story when traditionally you get a lot of the sort of latest developments, the big political stories drop. So they would have been expecting, you know, more number 10 party revelations, plenty of kind of speculation about the prime minister's future. So I think there's a suspicion in the UK that that it might have been to do with that. But I do also think that there is a sort of genuine desire to get the Ukraine issue up the agenda. Mm. Charlie, let's come back to you if the connection to Latvia is good enough. Matt alluded to it earlier, another aspect of this crisis has been the increasing talk about whether Finland and Sweden, obviously very traditionally, uh, traditionally very neutral countries, might actually join NATO, whether the Russian action here might push the Swedish and uh, Finnish populations and governments into the arms of NATO, if you like. And in that sense, uh, you could certainly say from a a Russian point of view, actually backfire. How realistic is that talk? We've seen some opinion polls out there. You're, You're based in Stockholm. Do you see either of them actually moving to join NATO anytime soon? Well, if we take um, take Sweden first, yeah, opinion polls do suggest a shift towards a more positive view of NATO among the population. Um, but there is more engagement with the question as we head towards a general election in Sweden later this year, where the opposition parties are largely in favour of NATO and the governing uh, Social Democrats are largely against. What I've heard is that the opposition parties, even if they were to win, wouldn't move without being confident that the Social Democrats were on board with NATO. In Finland, it seems like there's a similar situation there, that the Social Democrats are the ones who 
would like to keep things as they are. Um, as in Sweden, the Social Democrats are cautious about riling Russia by changing their non-aligned status towards a more um, an even closer relationship with NATO, NATO or even membership. So I think in the short term, it looks unlikely, but the debate is definitely live. Charlie, I've heard that these polls are somewhat misleading on NATO in the sense that if you ask people both in Sweden and Finland, if they trust their leaders to make the right decision on this question of neutrality, that large majorities in both countries, I believe, say yes. But if you ask them in isolation, do you want to join NATO? There's sort of a lukewarm response. But if you say, well, you'll leave it up to your leaders and you'll trust them, it's much more favorable. Is that your understanding as well? I think it's one of those ones, the question sort of fades into the background for long periods and people don't give it much thought. And then when concerns about Russia start to to sharpen again, as they did in 2014 and as they're doing now, then people kind of wake up to the question of NATO. I mean, if you ask them right now, their attitude is probably as favorable as it's ever ever been. Yeah, I just I think this is a really important point, because if you just look at a map, and especially the Finnish border with Russia, you can see how long it is. And if there's any move by Finland to move into NATO, I think the likelihood that the Russians could try to do something there in response is is quite high. And I think this is what is really worrying a lot of people is that, you know, this conflict with Ukraine could quickly spread beyond Ukraine's borders to other parts of Europe. Okay, I think we'd uh, better leave it there for now. But Annabelle and Charlie and Matt will be back later on uh, very briefly with some uh, recommendations for reading or listening or streaming. Uh, But for now, Charlie, Annabelle, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And as Annabelle mentioned in our conversation, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is under intense pressure over reports of lockdown-busting parties in Downing Street. If you're interested in that story, be sure to check out the season premiere of our sister podcast, Westminster Insider, hosted by Jack Blanchard. He's looking into the nature of political scandals and what it's like to be at the centre of a political storm. That comes out early Friday morning, so be sure to subscribe or follow Westminster Insider so you get the episode directly in your feed. And if you haven't done the same already for EU Confidential, please do so while you're at it. We'll be back with Polish MEP Patrick Jaki in just a moment. A message from the Johns Hopkins University SAIS. Today's global challenges are complex. It is essential for future leaders to understand how geopolitics, security, economics, climate, energy technology, and the environment are linked. This is what you will learn as a student at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS. Our flexible graduate programs prepare you to advance your globally focused career. The Master of Arts in European Public Policy, MEPP, at SAIS Europe in Bologna, Italy, is a one-year degree that prepares students for careers where knowledge of Europe and the EU is important. Apply today. Rolling applications through the 15th of April, 2022. Go to sais.jhu.edu for more details. sais.jhu.edu Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So let's turn to one of the big issues facing the European uh, Union, and that is the clash over rule of law particularly between the EU institutions, what you might call the EU mainstream, and the governments of Poland and Hungary. And uh, today we're going to focus in particular on Poland. And I'm joined by our senior editor, Jan Czenski, our expert on all things Poland. Hi, Jan. Hi. And uh, we are going to hear uh, a different voice, uh, maybe the kind of voice or point of view you don't hear quite so often in Brussels. And often we hear in Brussels, we hear the views of the European Commission, the majority in the European Parliament. But uh, as some of our listeners have suggested too, important to hear uh, the voices on the other side of the debate as well. So you sat down this week with somebody who can help us get the Polish government's point of view on this. Uh, tell us who you spoke to. Um, he's an MEP called uh, Patrick Yaki, who is probably the one of the most vociferous voices in the European Parliament defending the legal changes that have happened in Poland over the last uh, five or six years. His involvement in national politics dates back to 2015 when the current uh, right-wing government took power and his immediate boss was Zbigniew Ziobro, the justice minister, the man responsible for the scope and range of the, of the judicial reform. So he's sort of been there at the inception of what they planned to do with the uh, with the court system. Okay, before we get into the meat of uh, that debate, let's just hear from him first on how he got into politics, how he became uh, a politician. It's quite an interesting story. It's also because of sport, because of football. Uh, because I, when I was young, I dreamt to become a professional football player. In the area where I lived, there was only... Uh, football field made of concrete and gravel and uh, every time uh, when I tripped over I get scars. Uh, so I started to ask friends who can change this and I always get answered that politicians. Uh, so I decided to apply for the uh, membership in city council and I won. I was 20. I probably still the youngest member of this council. And when I become a member of this council, my first move was to build this modern field with the illumination. And now children uh, in this area can play football instead of drinking beer. And then uh, when I grew up, I discovered other political motivation to become a professional politician. So that's how I started. 
So that's how he became a politician. And as you were saying, he's now become a very prominent protagonist, if you like, in this debate over the rule of law in Poland. And in particular, the changes that the Polish government has made to the judicial system. The accusation from the European Commission and from others is that the Polish government has violated the Polish constitution and EU law in the way it's gone about these changes, that it's basically bringing the judiciary under political control. Maybe just summarise before we hear from Patrick Yaki again, the key complaints, what are the, the key bodies that the Polish government has changed and um, what's the criticism of the way they've gone about that? The first change uh, dates back to immediately after the uh, law and justice took power in 2015. There was a dispute over judges appointed to the Constitutional Tribunal, which is essentially the country's top court. The new parliament ignored the three nominations that were made by uh, the previous parliament and, according to constitutional scholars, illegally uh, elected three new nominees who were sworn in by President Andrzej Duda. And so there's a general view among uh, nonpartisan observers that this step violated the Polish constitution. In subsequent years, the government has done a lot to completely rebuild the court system, especially there's a, there's a body that nominates judges, and it's supposed to be separate from the political process. The judges essentially nominate other judges uh, away from political interference, and the nominating procedures to this body have been changed, and um, it's now firmly under the control of parliament, which means it's under the control of the ruling party. Okay, well, let's hear the government point of view, if you like, from Patrick Yaki as to why it was actually a good thing, if you like, in their point of view, to not have the judges nominating their own, in other words, to change that system, which Patrick Yaki explained to you during your interview. There is accusation that this council is now politicized. This council has 25 members and 15 of these members are judges, so majority. So this is the the most important part of this council. And in the previous system, this council was 15 judges, was appointed by the judges. So it was against division of power, check and balance between three powers, executive, legislative and the judge's powers. Because uh, in that system, the judges uh, appointed themselves, uh, assessed themselves. So a new government changed the way how they appointed judges. And they choose Western system, Western system, Spanish system, because um, Spain has the same judicial council. However, this judicial council is appointed by the parliament in Poland, choose the same system. Another um line of defence, if you like, uh, used by uh, the the Polish government is that they are being unfairly singled out here by the European Commission and by others and they point to judicial systems in other countries such as Germany and Spain. In Germany, there is uh, the same judicial council. Half of this judicial council are the politicians themselves, lands ministries of justice, and the second half, people appointed by the politician. The thing is, the German one is done in accordance with German constitutional principles. I am pretty sure that this system is uh, still in line with the Polish constitution. But the most important thing is that look into the German system. Our accusation to the Poland is that we politicized the system. So in Poland, the judges still appointed judges, but in Germany, politicians appointed judges. So when someone tried to tell us that the Polish system is more 
politicized than in German, for us is a joke. Of course, in, in one sense, ultimately, it, this is really about whether the Polish system is correct and constitutional and in line with EU law. But what is the response to that line of argument that they are being unfairly singled out and that other countries also have a kind of versions of this system? I mean, in a sense, they're correct. There's a wide range of ways that countries select judges and uh, other countries, uh, Germany and Spain and France, uh, do have a more political approach to nominating judges. The complaint against the polls is that the government rammed through these changes, changing an existing system and putting it much more firmly under political control than was the case in the past. Um, some critics of the government see that that actually violates the Polish constitution uh, and the separation of powers that the, uh, that the constitution sets up. The government obviously doesn't agree with that view at all. Mm. Um, and another thing that you touched on in the interview is how this is impacting Poland in quite a concrete way right now. I mean, you know, it's really affecting the bottom line, if you like, because uh, as we know, Poland has not yet received the green light to get uh, money from the EU's recovery fund, which is partly due to concerns about this, at least partly due to concerns about the independence of the judiciary. And we're also uh, expecting a European court ruling soon, which may or may not uphold a European uh, Commission plan that would allow them to cut EU funding from the budget again over concerns like this. So if you like, this is already costing Poland, the Polish government, money and could end up costing them a lot more. Why do you think, and perhaps Patrick Yaki helps us explain this, Poland is kind of sticking to its guns here and not hasn't reached uh, some kind of compromise with Brussels here? They have talked, there's a, there's a disciplinary chamber in the Supreme Court that's supposed to punish judges who do bad things. Mm. And so the government contends that there's rampant criminality among judges, lots of ex-communists uh, in, the, in the system. Right, that was another thing that the reason they feel they had to act or they say they had to act is because the old system wasn't working, the old system was throwing up problems and so they were carrying out a necessary reform. But at the same time, of course, now they know where they stand and they know that it's costing them money. The Court of Justice of the EU has found that this disciplinary chamber is not actually a court in the legal sense and has demanded that it be suspended. And uh, Poland has refused to do that and is now facing a million euro a day fine for every day that it doesn't suspend. This chamber is continuing to function. And uh, the government has talked about potentially rolling back the chamber. They've also admitted that the uh, the legal reforms they've done until now have been fairly chaotic and haven't produced the results they've wanted. But they also, and he advances a kind of legal argument that because a whole bunch of court rulings have taken place under this system, that if you undid it or undid elements of it, you would also be then calling into question a lot of judgments, a lot of court rulings that have happened in the interim. It will be a disaster, not only for Poland, but uh, for the whole European Union, because you had, for instance, the cases uh, like, you know, economic cases between um, company from the Germany and between company from Poland. And so this is the real problem. And this is why the Polish government has doubts uh, with this ruling. 
Let's change topics, though, because Patrick Yaki has also been quite vocal on another topic, which is where we also see uh, Poland uh, taking a line which is quite different from, well, the general direction that the European Commission would like them to go in, at least in terms of the speed of um, travel. And that is uh, an area you cover very closely, climate and measures to cut carbon emissions. There's this giant big package of measures uh, being rolled out under the heading of Fit for 55. That's cutting emissions by 55% by 2030, very ambitious target. Now, the Polish government, again, is a bit of an outlier here, is not uh, just kind of ticking all the boxes the commission wants it to tick. What in particular are the Polish uh, objections? And then we'll hear Patrick Yaki expand on that a bit. Um, the main objection is Poland's economy is very heavily coal-based. Uh, about 70% of the electricity is generated by coal. It's a very heavily industrialized country. And so the Polish contention is that uh, the costs of a rapid decarbonization are much higher in a country like Poland than, for example, France, which uses a lot of, uh, a lot of nuclear power. If we push Poland to energy transition with this kind of speed and significant cost, we need to ask about the point of start of every country. So from my point of view, you, you can't say uh, in the same way France and Poland, for instance, that Poland need to do the same like in France because Poland don't have the same uh, sources because of history like France. Because Poland was almost 50 years in the Soviet Union economy. And of course, we want to change, but not in this speed like a European Commission proposal. The counter-argument is that Poland has been earning a lot of money by selling permits under the EU's emissions trading system, but hasn't been using most of that money to decarbonize. Right. Another reason why the Polish government is kind of arguing for a go slow or warning that if they are forced to give up coal too quickly, that could have geopolitical repercussions. In particular, there's an argument around energy security, which fits in with, again, this particular Polish government, I think a more general Polish view, a wariness about relying on Russia. This climate transition, like I said, is very important. However, we need to understand in a whole Europe, that the green energy is still some kind of extra value to the stable sources of energy. There are only three stable sources of energy. This is nuclear, coal, gas. So if we decide to decline coal, then we decide to not recommend nuclear because it's not green. So we now have only gas. And there is another question on that, from whom we can get this gas. And then, on whom then we rely on. And we need to understand that the most important source of gas in whole Europe is Kremlin. And Kremlin like to play with this gas without economical reasons. And then finally, as we do with, with many of our guests and with our panellists, uh, we asked Patrick Yaki for a couple of uh, recommendations for listeners, uh, things that they've enjoyed uh, reading or watching or listening to. And he had a couple of interesting ones. Uh, the first one was Cobra Kai, new to me, I have to say, but a martial arts comedy drama, which is uh, a kind of sequel to the Karate Kid movies. You can find in this movie lots of important messages. Uh, for instance, how important is relation between uh, father and mother and children when they are growing up. 
and how childhood could impact the future of children. So this is a very good movie. And then uh, he also had a book recommendation, which I thought was pretty uh, revealing about his uh, political point of view. And also, uh, he certainly believed, quite relevant to uh, current times and particularly the crisis with Ukraine. I'm now reading Ronald Reagan biography by Paul Kangor. However, it's not a simple biography. It's a spiritual biography. It's very interesting. And I believe that lots of politicians can find important message nowadays. Because, you know, Ronald Reagan had advisors. And these advisors uh, tried to convince him that even with Soviet Union, you can find something pragmatic. But uh, Reagan, because of his beliefs have a strong background from the church and he clearly divide good and evil and he decided to fight against evil with every measures he had and what is important he won and this is important message for elite nowadays when the russian invasion is possible that the politicians can be like Reagan or can be like Chamberlain. And I can strongly appeal to consider this kind of history because, you know, history could be a good lesson for politicians nowadays. Okay, that was Patrick Yaki. And thanks very much, Jan, for, for bringing us that conversation. You're very welcome. And thanks also to listener Machai for suggesting the idea for the interview. And since Patrick Yaki gave his recommendations, we're back with the podcast panel to get some more. Matt, let's start with you. What have you got? This week is the 80th anniversary of the Wannsee Conference. And the Germans are are all uh, Twitter about this new film that has come out called the Wannsee Conference. It was on German public television, but that's not my recommendation. My recommendation is another film starring Kenneth Branagh that uh, was made about the Wannsee Conference in 2001, I believe. It also stars Stanley Tucci. And this, of course, is the meeting in Wannsee outside of Berlin where the final solution was planned out during World War II. And it's it's a very chilling movie. I haven't seen the new German uh, version, but this original one was, was also excellent and I recommend it to people. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, Charlie, how about you? What would you recommend? Yeah, so it's um, a Danish drama series on uh, Netflix, I think, called, uh, I guess it translates as like The Chestnut Man or something like that. And it ticks all the boxes of all the classic uh, Nordic noir cliches but it actually was very good and i watched it right the way through and it was extremely creepy uh, so i'll warn i'll warn listeners about that all right good well that's funny because i was going to recommend a bit of tartan noir which is um you know crime fiction scottish crime fiction and um uh, there's a, a book which was published last year by the kind of godfather of tartan noir, a guy called William McIlvanny, actually a very distinguished Scottish novelist who wrote crime novels which kind of went beyond the traditional kind of whodunit, if you like. And um, he left a manuscript half finished, which Ian Rankin, the kind of inheritor of the the mantle of uh, tartan noir, then finished. So uh, the book is called The Dark Remains, very interesting, and you get an extra bit of guessing as to guess 
guess which bit was written by McIlvanny and which bit by Rankin. So that's mine. Um, Annabelle, how about you? Um, so I've been, I'm in, well, I'm in the middle. I haven't actually finished it, but I'm in the middle of The Coming Storm, which is a BBC podcast series. And it sort of tracks the sort of American mood, the sort of QAnon conspiracy theories, right up to the storming of the Capitol. So um, I'm looking forward to another car journey so I can finish it. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, Charlie, Matt, Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us so you never miss an episode. And if you like the podcast, tell a friend or maybe even a few. As you discovered earlier, listeners' ideas are always welcome and taken on board. You can email us directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to Noah Zahn and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.